Uh, and you're, you can watch it there, so we know that it's not going to watch out. what you can watch it over there, so you know it's not going to stop on us. Yeah, January eleventh. Yeah. All okay. right, we're going to do a show. This is new, so this part. I'm going off my old iPad. <laughs> yeah, get off the phone. I'm posting about the show, dude. Uh, what? I'm posting it's not about. Live. It is live. People are going to know that we're doing this. <laughs> How creepy is that? I don't know. Why don't you show our listeners? What? <laughs> All right. I get what you're saying. Welcome to Hollywood Anonymous. I am Brian Irwin. I'm John Huck. First real show of 2016. I feel like we were just two old men that were really confused about technology. I'm Why trying to figure out how to use... Work? I'm trying to use the iPad for the new music. You're trying to post something live on a show that's, that's not, not going to air for weeks. I'm not, I mean, I'm not posting it live. I just... I posted it. That's all. It was just a picture. We now just explain what... The picture was <clears throat> the weird picture I posted a few weeks back. Now about I have a I have a I'll have a weird plastic clown mask on that is hanging in Brian's house for some reason, which we're upstairs this time, guys. We're not in the basement. I uh, yeah. We Tell us to, if the sound is different. No, yeah, I'm sure that's what they're worried about. No, it should be fine. It's just gonna be a little bit more echoey because we actually have to be in the dining room table. Why so. couldn't you hang ferny pads? <sighs> okay, staple them to the wall. Are you coming over early to help set up during the shows? Mm, I believe that I usually come over late. I think oh, that's okay. my right, well, that's kind of my thing. Then, then I think we just answered our question as uh, to why we don't have okay. this. Is listen, I, I've heard some other podcasts of people on phones. So oh yeah, no no no, I've heard yeah, I've heard some bad ones. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're really nice, talented people, but you can't. Oh, I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the quality of the show. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. So this we, this was the last time we did a show. In my uh, my dining room was was uh, the Bill was Dwyer that the Bill mystery Dwyer? show. God, yes, that damn, was that was just... a weird show. Whew. But you know, listen, live and learn. It was entertaining. It was entertaining. And then when you said people really people really listened, that was one of our in. most highly listened. Show. I think people were just like, "What is going on here?" I don't, I don't blame them. Mick Bentoncourt hit me up. He's like, "Hey, uh, how many people listen to the show?" Like he was really really concerned that like people were like not going to tune in if you're, or, or, or we're tuning in just specifically to hear well, it. Well, and, and again, because of his show, because he's so anti-social media, it's good luck trying to like tag him or associate him with the show because the yeah. guy lives in the dark ages. Well, no, I mean, he's on Twitter. He's on, he's got all that. He no, just doesn't. No, I think he pulled out his old mailing list from stand-up comedy <clears throat> where people used to have to fill it out at the shows and he would actually mail out a flyer <laughs> yeah. letting people know that he's on the internet. <laughs> Guys, if you want podcast. Hey, I got this letter in the mail that says I could follow Mick Court <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. Uh, I mean, we could bitch about all that, all that as much as you want, but I, I, I look at it now and like you realize what it was like to try to get a following back in the, uh, I guess the, the pre digital age. What these guys had to go through. Yeah, they had to, to do Carson. You had to do Carson. Well, no, no. Let's say you were just a touring stand-up comic or, or anybody. Like, what if you were a traveling show of any sort? Like, you every time you went to that city. You really had to push aggressively to get any contact information you could from people. Yes, so that well, you that's, could recontact. That's what them. Kevin Hart did. Kevin Hart was the the king of like everywhere you went. There was a huge a mailing list. He had like a fucking notebook. It was a mailing list. It was like okay. And I kind of I remember one day I was like thinking to myself like all right, that's kind of obnoxious, you know. I mean, he was always not a nice guy, but I was like that's a little bit obnoxious. And then of course, what did he do? He parlayed that into a, you know. I mean, it's what you have to he, do. He 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 hustled. He was a uh, like everything he's getting, people are like I'm sick of Kevin Hart. I don't want to see. I mean, whether you like the guy or not, whether you like his comedy or not, that guy hustled his ass off to get where he is, and he knows full well that the movie thing. He's got five, six, seven years tops that people are going to want to see him in movies. And but then he can go back and do stand up, which is his first love and which he keeps doing. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I don't know why I'm matter. being so pro Kevin Hart right now, guys. I, I, were you? First, I was. So I was. You started negative. 
No, and no, then no. You, and you got out. You dug out of the hole. I don't think I was negative. You can only be negative to Cosby. Well, yeah. And uh, I'm still else? mad that like I when when I was thinking about like when people ask you who are your favorite comics like he's his name still pops up in my fucking head. I'm like, god damn it! Like I can't say that anymore. Can't be like, oh Cosby, I love him. It's weird when you when you're a uh, I guess uh, a fan of somebody or something, and then they, they let you down. Well, like horribly. OJ, has, OJ Simpson had this problem, right? So it's yeah. like you can't erase what you saw. Like OJ Simpson, I didn't watch him play football, but I thought he was hilarious in those uh, Naked Gun, Naked Gun movies. Dude, he was so funny in Naked Gun. But you know what I mean. But, then, but now you're just like you know. I, I can't, just recently, I think I watched a little bit of that movie, and then he came on. I was like, Am I allowed to keep this movie on? Which <laughs> I feel bad because my it's like parents, my parents saw Thirty Three and a Third in the theater, and it was after. The trial, or the it was after he had been the Bronco chase, and everyone was like, Boo, OJ. And then he showed up on the screen, and I was like, Ooh, but everyone stayed in the I mean, no one left the movie theater, you know. You, I mean? you realize that if George Lucas had made those three movies, he would have been digitally erased from it, and someone else would have put it. Yeah, they would have put like out. Jar Jar Binks in there, and it would have, everyone <laughs> would have put, That's anybody. the most racist thing I've ever seen. <laughs> just put it actually, that would be a bad idea. Just take him completely, like literally wipe they're, him out of there. They're just talking to a blank, or just nothing. They're just talking like they are, they're all insane. It's the new sixth sense. They just talk to nobody. Uh, guys, our guest for today, uh, director. Uh, lover of music, all around solid guy, right? Sure. Michael Shea, everybody. Michael uh, Shea. I, I had this earlier. Shea, S H, not C H. That's correct. Because I said Michael Shea is the as our guest, and uh, my friend goes, "Oh, you you got the guy from Saturday Night Live to fly in for your podcast?" And I was like, "Nope, no, we didn't." I thought you were confused about how to say his name. No, I'm not. I'm saying Che and Shea. People very close. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because something that just happened yesterday was that. So there, um, I was picking up my kid from a, uh, a sleepover, and uh, when I was talking to, and I've always known this about this this guy's last name, but it always made me uncomfortable. And so when he was talking, his last name is Kegel. 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 Yeah. Okay. So I'm not going to go into the explanation of what a Kegel is. If you don't know, you're going to have to Google it. But anyway, it's the butt thing, right? No. What? Okay. Like I said, Kegels. <laughs> What's a Kegel? Kegel. Kegel. That's it. Uh, it's an exercise that women do to keep the vagina tight. Yeah, but, but they flex their cheeks and, and their yeah yeah yeah. Well, they're... the butthole it has nothing to do with the butthole. Oh, it's, it's the muscle inside the vagina. Anyway, the, anyway, the, my point is, as he was talking to me, he used his own name in the sentence, and he was like, "Hey, you know, since so, Mr. Kegel," and I was like, and like literally a minute later. I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know, I would, you know, whatever, Mr. Kegel. He's like, it's Kegel. And I thought to myself, I know, but I'm not saying it. I don't want to say it out loud to you. Like, literally, I was so concerned about saying it out loud that even though it was his name, I chose to not say his name to him because of what I had the point of reference on. Uh, and obviously with him, he's lived with it his whole entire life. So I, there's no way he hasn't already dealt with yeah, but I mean, jokes. But do a, a lot of do a lot of people know what that is? Does everybody know what that is? I mean, I don't know. I get yelled. I said at, right? I say Merkin on stage now. And people look at me like I'm a fucking idiot. I'm like, you right. never heard of a Merkin before? They're like, ah. Ron White did a, a, a Kegel joke at the Improv one night when I was hosting, and my buddy in the back did not know what a Kegel was. See, yeah. And so I went on stage and I said. He had just got off, Ron White just got off stage, and I said to him, I go, my buddy didn't know what a kegel was, and Ron White lost his mind that I was even talking about the, what his set was. And I was explaining, I was trying to say that, I was like, I had explained to my buddy what it was, because he didn't understand why everybody else was laughing, and that upset Ron White so much, he yelled at me, like a good minute, minute and a half what? off stage. He was so pissed that I had even referenced the fact that somebody didn't get his joke. What? But I was talking about the kegel. How, yeah. Anyway, back to you. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. 
So let's bring that? our guest in, and Brian right. has 19 minutes of stories, and then we go. Back. I just, it just the, the name, it just all happened. Sorry, Michael Shea, it's director. Leaking. It's raining. It is raining. It's raining in Los Angeles, guys. Uh, Washington uh, Seahawks fan, I guess. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Seattle. Mariners fan. Unfortunately. That was, well, I mean. They were good in the Ken Griffey, Ken Griffey Jr. years. Right? They've made the playoffs four times in 39 years. It's, hey. been, a, it's been a miserable 39 He's a years. Fan, you got a little. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right. Um, and that was, that was one of the first things we bonded over. We worked together on disaster. No, parental control. That's right. Yeah, parental control. Wait, you bonded over the Mariners? No, or? we bonded over baseball in general. Oh, uh, okay. And, and, and the Grateful Dead, I think. <laughs> and um, the Mariners had traded uh, Fat Silva to yeah. the Cubs, and I told him what misery he was in I, for. Yeah, because I was like, oh, that Silva guy's coming over to Chicago. And you're like, good, he fucking sucks. You gave and him the intel. Enjoy yeah. that. And what, but what's his real first name? Carlos, I Car- think. Yeah, but he was like... Because there was, yeah, there was. We just Car- called him Fat Silva. Yeah, there's Carlos Zambrano, and then we were getting this Carlos Silva, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's good. But then I did. He goes, like, Fat Silva? And then I look at a picture, I was like, ooh, he's, he was like Roberto Colon fat, you know, like, bleh. It was fat. Except Roberto Colon is still playing. Yeah, and whipping the ball, like, really doing a good job. Someone said they saw him pitch the other day. And it was Except fantastic. he's got a, re- a reverse receding hairline. Have you noticed that, like, it's actually, you know, like when you get older, you get the neck hair? His hair is receding on the backside. There's nothing back there anymore. It's actually. He's fine up front. It's like he's getting it's back. He's going to have to do. It's gonna, the weirdest thing. Well, you know what it is? It's, it's, it's from the out. hat, probably. It's no, from it's thirty years, forty years of wearing a hat and pulling it off your head a certain way. So I heard you when you walked into my house because you said <laughs> that I had a Packers uh, um, uh, doormat out there. Yes. Um, my son is a Seahawks fan. That uh, how did Makes, that happen? I, I I'm a firm believer because I don't I, and I don't know how John's going to do this if he ever accidentally has children. But beat I don't, them into being Cubs fans and ignoring the NFL. I don't want to force my children into any like any part of my life. I want them to live their own life. So I didn't want to be like because I'm a Packer fan. You have to be. And so I gave my kids choices, even though that's Packers primarily in the house. And each one of them was like, well, if they don't have a choice, well, they're not going to like your team. So neither one of them like my team. What is who the does, Russell Wilson thing is kind of like you know he's kids all love the him. Place, yeah. So that's a good quarterback like to love too. Yeah, but man, oh man, having the enemy in my house on the NFC Championship game with one of the most epic meltdowns ever in the history of watching football. It's just that that probably pained me more. If you one thing, if it was you, it wouldn't even bother me. But it was my blood. <laughs> my, my blood was right there, just dancing in front of the TV watching the meltdown. Well. <laughs> Did you go to the game? I, yeah, I was at the game, and it was. Um, I was sitting right behind Curse, Jermaine Curse's family. He's the guy, the receiver who dropped four passes, two of which oh. led to interceptions. His family had their head in their hands the whole like they were oh. crying after this after the fourth one. They were crying, and he caught the winning touchdown right in front of his parents, and then threw the ball at toward them, and they were like. J- Tears of joy. It was incredible to watch. Wow. Because like, you don't think of these guys as people. I, right. wanted, oh, yeah. I wanted to curse, 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 yeah. curse out. Right. But I How couldn't did you figure it out, parents, by the way? How long did they, it take you to figure it out? They were all wearing his jersey, and they all looked like him. Okay. Right. All right. It was, so, like, it was obviously his family. We'd yeah. gotten our tickets through the team, so uh, okay. we knew they were family around. All right, yeah. So you had some pretty good seats. No, they were in the end zone, but they. But nonetheless, it well, was. No, you had really good seats based on what happened. You yes. had the best seats yeah. in the house. That's yeah. right. For the you, end, you watched the end of history right in front of your face. Yeah, um, but, but, but let me tell you something about what you said with your kids. Like I've got three little kids, and last year in the playoffs, the, um, the game before Carolina, I think it was, they were they started rooting against the Seahawks because they get mad at me for watching sports, and I turned to them with dead serious and I said, "You cannot root against the Seahawks in this house." And they looked at me like, is he serious? And I said, I'm fucking serious. 
you cannot root against the Seahawks. You will have to go outside. Yeah, you want to you want to yeah. root? Yeah, go, go out in the yard. So I'm taking the opposite approach as you. They'll yeah. probably hate me as adults. Well, but no, but they're, look, I think it. I, it could go either way. It could I've, go either swayed, way. I've swayed one of my children because he chose the Philadelphia Eagles, so he got off that bandwagon right quick. So Chip he's Kelly a did him fan. In. So yeah, exactly. So I've, I've got two. There's two. Which, which fans one like the Eagles? Elliot, don't ask me why. And Tanner, like, I can, but see, I understand. Like, the Seahawks, like, like you said, Russell Wilson, as for like Tanner to look, as a guy you look at, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's great. I understand that. I don't. What is the redeeming quality of looking at the Eagles, unless you were? Unfortunately, born in Philadelphia, and you have to be an Eagles fan. Yeah, I, don't I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but I, I do have a fascinating question because I haven't never talked to anybody that when you're when you're part of something as historical as that when you're actually there, because you obviously watched football on television and you and now you and you saw something. I hope like that. that was the only game he saw. Yeah, only ever, you know what I'm saying? It's like I, I wonder, like because you've done both. Uh, is it better to be there when it, when something like that happens? Is the emotion like really, really heightened in a situation like that? In my opinion, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a big live event guy. Like as we, he talked about music. Like I love going to concerts. I love being at sporting events. And sure, sometimes you're there for drudgery. But when it when the magic happens, it's so much better to be there. Even though you're not getting all the best angles, because that's yeah. the, that's the argument about football, right? But it's you like, can watch you all that the, shit later on ESPN. But you know? see, but you get to look at what you want to look at too. I mean, I like I like better as a director i like to make the choices so i like to be <laughs> if i want to watch the receiver on this play i want to watch the receiver whereas right you know in in you watch sports and they like go to your close-up of the uh, quarterback till this right before the snap i don't even know where the players are lined up yeah. that, that pisses me off so i so i do prefer to be there for that reason as well okay and then i dvr it and watch it later now were That's, you just like everybody else <clears throat> though, when, when it could you know, here's the thing when I was watching the game, and I'll get off this in a sec, but it, it was a fascinating thing to just uh, the human condition for me too. I did get an uneasy feeling after the first after when they scored that first one. I really was like, something's not right here. Like I, I felt that, and it's like I felt it before there was the complete and under meltdown. So nothing, everything after that just started to make sense that it was just it was going that way. Did you have that same thing, or was every moment like you got to be kidding me kind of thing? It, the the biggest moment was the onside kick recovery, like that. In fact, later I read an article where they said that they were measuring the sound, and that was the biggest cheer of the day. But that was also the biggest moment of 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 joy too. The uh, once we got the ball to start the you know, overtime, I knew we were going to win. I knew we were going to score a touchdown on that drive. I just felt it. But but that onside kick was so improbable. You know, the guy did what he wasn't supposed to do, and the whole thing went just worked perfectly for us. And then you knew that we'd score. But I, we can get off this in a second, but I want to say this about the Seahawks. I, I love them, but you saw what happened. We score, we take the lead, we get that ridiculous two-point conversion, and then they come down and get a tying field goal. I knew that would happen too because every game that we've lost – with our fantastic defense, every game we've lost in the last three years, the defense has given up a score late. Nobody, nobody ever writes articles about it. Nobody talks about it, but it's a fact. <laughs> well, they really need to since you've been to the Super Bowl two years in a row. Well, I, and yeah. and look really good going into right. the playoffs but, again this year. But I was at. So if, if it makes you feel any better, I was also at the Super Bowl two weeks later. Yeah, and that was. Literally the worst moment of my life, which as is funny. ridiculous as that is. And we'll, we'll to put a to, to cap on it so that I feel better about myself. Yeah, my neighbor two doors down is a huge Patriots fan, and 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 he the exact the same thing you felt in that NFC Championship game is the same. He was in the same part of the end zone when that when that score happened to t- to or when that I'm sorry when that yeah. defensive play happened and all that stuff. So he has that exact same thing that you have two different ends of the spectrum. But let but let's be honest. I mean. 
if you love watching sports, regardless of like where you fall in the winning or the losing, those two games back to back, it's just the fact that it happened like that is just unbelievable. And probably never will be replicated. Again. It was a fantastic Super Bowl. It was a great game to be at. The two things together were awesome. And that drive home to through the desert was just fucking terrible. Well, yeah. Like we were like so. Me and my buddy were just so depressed every mile. Mm. That was an, coming from Arizona. Yeah, no, John, yeah. the Bears. All right. So anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, quick question. You brought it up, but um, I thought it was an interesting comment. Um, tell us some of the other things you've directed uh, in terms of television, and and also what you said. When you said you're the director. You like to make the choices what you want to look at when you're watching sports. What is, does that come into everything you do? Like, is that also like uh, um, for? I mean, obviously, I guess it would work with music, and then but like. I don't know everything else. Like you're like to make a decision. Like I, I don't know. I guess if I'm watching football, I do the same thing. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna watch that guy. See this, whatever. But I don't know. I didn't think of it like that. I don't know. I don't know. So well, yeah. I mean, you know, I I'll give you an example. I go to the Hollywood Bowl. My wife and I have subscription, and she loves classical music. We go, and I'm constantly c- complaining about the shots that they're giving us on the screens. Like you want to see you're the, there and you're complaining about the, yeah, the, the, screen. the cellist, you know, they, I want to see a close up of his fingers. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like he's got a solo, let's see it, you know, and I'm, and I'm getting some other terrible, like, I don't know what they pay that guy, but <laughs> I want that job. Yeah. I was going to say, have you ever inquired cellist? about taking no, the, 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 <laughs> the in-house Hollywood bowl guy? Cause he's, yeah. he's, he's bad, but also at the same time for most of that stuff, <laughs> he, he doesn't really <laughs> have to be good. Do you know what I mean? Like right. I, I get what you're saying for that, but like, and then I guess if like it was Van Halen, you'd want some close-ups of Eddie's fingers. You know what I mean? But well, like, and then you go to a production like I saw you two last year, and I hadn't seen him in almost twenty years. And, and yeah. you know, and and I'd loved him when I was young. And I went to, and that that production was unbelievable. Like you walk out of there just like, wow, what are you, like the whole show, not just the music. Like yeah. they, everything was spot on, and the, the graphics but were that's incredible. Them, and, though, right? the yeah, the, they're notorious for dumping. They love uh, that. Uh, yeah, a, a ton of money to make sure they get it exactly mm. right. That's uh, what was the last before that? When was the last time you saw you two? It was the would have been ninety two. I guess with big audio dynamite and Public Enemy. Yeah, yeah. Where I did, saw that. One I too. saw that concert. Where did you see that at? In, um, up in Seattle. <laughs> nice. I saw yeah, Poplar or uh, Tinley Park. In uh, Illinois, that's where I, I saw, saw it. Madison, God, dude, that was a great show too. Yeah. Public Enemy, the guy came out in the Klan outfit at the beginning, and I was like, "What the fuck?" Like, <laughs> at first, I was like, "Oh, someone's made a horrible mistake," and then I was like, "Oh yeah, it's Public Enemy." It was great, man. It was really uh, and Big Audio Dynamite. What a it was a crazy interesting combo. band. Yeah, yeah, and I, you two again put on a really solid like looking show well, well when you sound. can make as much money as you do as they sure, do you sure. can put as much money as you want into it and and quite frankly it's like listen you know y- you get older everybody gets it and you don't want to be running all over the place and trying to put in that that manic energy you had when you were 22 years old so what's the next logical thing to right. do give them some a lot of bells and whistles and all this yeah. other stuff around it and it still keeps people engaged versus having them go oh yeah you're not what you once were like yeah. i see the decline yeah you know, I, I think I saw the Stones. I don't think the one of you guys ever saw the Stones. Oh yeah, I, I, I can't remember what tour it was. This would have been the mid to late nineties. Steel Wheels, Steel Wheels tour. Oh uh, right, and, I, and I, it or was, was that eighty nine. That was eighty nine. Yeah. No, this would have been yeah. This is the late nineties. I can't remember what it was. I saw him in Anaheim in ninety seven or eight. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, uh, okay, guys. I mean, even then, I was like, all right. It, it was it was okay. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but it's like I felt like it was one of those things you had to check off the list. Yeah. One I saw of those the bands, Stones. If they're around. You got to go see them. But I didn't feel like, wow, oh my god. The highlight of that show for me was Catherine Zeta-Jones was sitting like four seats away. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> Boom. And I never went to see the Stones again. Yeah. 
Because she wasn't going to be at any of the other... Because <laughs> she, she probably wasn't going either. You know, I, I loved him as a kid. They were my first love. But, yeah. you know, it was like... It was a little much at that age. But then you see bands, too, that you're like, oh, this is probably not going to be that good, and they put on a surprisingly good show. I, I tell you a crazy thing. A few years ago, and I never loved this guy at all. He was Glenn Campbell. Okay. He was a, you know, he's pop songs in the 70s, and I, I was aware of him on the radio and Rhinestone Cowboy and whatever. But... You know, we went. There were the bowl tickets. We went, and um, he was he was had he had also he has Alzheimer's, oh, and Jesus. he was like, and I didn't know it. They hadn't announced it to the public yet, but he's up there and he's playing and he's playing beautifully, like amazing, like guitar work, and he's singing really. His voice sounded good, and then he wouldn't know what to do next. And his daughter and his son are in the band, and his daughter would walk over and she was playing cello or violin, whatever, and she'd come over and say, you know, what the next song was. And then he'd play it. And he again, it was perfect, like incredible. And the whole concert went like that. And he, um, it was one of the coolest things I've ever been to. Whoa. Like, and then there were these two like rocker dudes who were like my, you know, mid 40s, like all dressed in like their rocker, 80s rocker outfits. And, you know, I thought they were there as like as a joke. And Rhinestone Cowboy breaks out. And these guys get up and start fist pumping and like to, and singing along to Rhinestone Cowboy. It was a it was just an awesome night. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, there's a documentary about that last tour. I exactly. It came out like a couple years a couple it's years on later. Oh, really? Yeah. It won an Oscar, I think. I believe so. Uh, yeah. Or it was either, nominated. Either the I know song it was nominated. did or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Yeah, watch that. it on Netflix, John. I will. I will. I cut, recently cut my cable down so that all I have is Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon. But that goes back to the, what you were asking about. You know, to me, going, you, you never know what's going to happen. You go to a live event, and like, I never would have thought. We went to Glen Campbell because we had the tickets, and we, right. you know, nobody wanted them. Right. And it was one of the coolest concerts I've seen in the last 10 years. So you never know. You go to a live event, and something amazing might happen. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and you were just, uh, not to jump around, but you were, uh, you were Born in the Pacific Northwest, or you were? I, w- I moved there when I was two weeks old. I was okay. born in New York. Okay, um, right near Shea Stadium. If you guys want to riff on my name again, oh, really? Um, but but then, now, do uh, you stake claim to New York in any way, shape, or form, or are you consider yourself? You're not. Or he's nah. like a two years old, a two weeks old. I Doesn't walked matter. out. Some to people, see, uh, no. some people do that. Well, right. But and, as a kid, I rooted for the Mets and the Jets, and until we didn't have teams. Yeah, you okay, know? yeah. Until we had teams, then I switched. But yeah, Seattle I was a, Pilots were long gone by then. Pilots were there that one year, and I was five, and I Which went to one eventually game. Actually, became wow. the Milwaukee Brewers, I believe. Wait, that's, no, wait, no. Yes, that's right. Was the okay? They weren't the ones that moved to. They, they became the Expos. No, that okay, was yeah. I forget. No, they Expos became, were, a, were, were an expansion team. Yeah. Oh, oh, they became the Milwaukee Brewers when the Milwaukee Braves moved to Atlanta. Yes. Selig bought the Pilots and moved them to Milwaukee. That's right. Okay. Oh yeah, because he owned the he owns the Brewers. Yeah. Oh, does he still own the Brewers? No, I don't think so. He can't be the commissioner of baseball no. and own a team, no, right? He's not he the commissioner the anymore. Well, not anymore, but I mean, yeah. But yeah, no, he well, no, his them. daughter was running him while he was commissioner. He yeah. put it in a trust or some bullshit. Oh, that's he cool. did sell it though. There's, it's some dude out here in Los Angeles that owns him now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's big into that. Uh, so, so Seattle or outside of Seattle, where exactly did you? Um, I grew up in Bellevue, Washington, right across the lake. But also, see, my folks got divorced, and I, I split time between Seattle and Bellevue as a kid. Okay. And what's uh, Bellevue? What is that rural? Is that it, more? it was a suburb then that was quite small and and very rural. Like there was there was still farm. My friends had farms, um, but now it's a it's a becoming a city. It there's is like okay. There's not like a couple hundred thousand people there now, and there's a there's a there's a skyline. I went uh, I went home a while back and to my old grade school for a reunion, and I couldn't believe that you could see a skyline from the parking lot of the school. Oh, it's really? It's crazy. It's, it's changed probably more than anywhere in America right now. And how far away is it from Seattle? It's, it's across the lake. It's a 
10 minute by bridge if you don't have traffic. So you can also see the city from there as well. Yeah. So no matter where you look, you're seeing skyline now? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which used to be, it used to be forests. Like we had a forest at the end of our block where we'd catch frogs and salamanders and all that. Kind of, you know, we had the Mayberry. Yeah, you're real hot. <laughs> and then, you know, now it's not like that at all. You went to your grade school reunion? Yeah, well, I went to a Catholic grade school, and you know, you go you go to these high school reunions, and it's fun, and, and we had a good time. But those people I'd kept in touch with more. The grade school people I hadn't seen in since I left because I okay I left the school and I left the church at the same time. So I was like, I'm done. I was 13. I'm like, fuck you. I'm yeah. not doing this anymore. I dug in my heels with my parents and took a year, but I got my way. And um, anyway. So, but uh, you know, Facebook made this happen, you know, and and that's why I do love Facebook for these kind of things. Like a bunch of people came together and formed a group, and then a reunion happened out of it. So. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah there are that's a lot really of people funny. that you would never have. I mean, imagine talking to your parents, like, well, how many people you talk to from your grade school? They're like, what are you talking about? Like, never again. Right. It's yeah. like, it's literally the thing where it's like, the, it's like getting on the ship and going, bye forever. Yeah. Like, we don't know the bye forever anymore. Like, that does not. Yeah, there, you can always no, find where people are. There's one way or another from here on out. Like, I'm from Wisconsin, and there are people um, in, that I will never find again because they were just previous to the, the hardcore digital era, and they'll, just, they'll never catch on. They've just chosen to not be digi- have a digital imprint. But from here on out, I mean, for over the last 20 years, I think everybody and from here on out, you, you can't get out of it unless you're one of these guys that's taken over Oregon. Like, that's yeah. pretty much. Right, 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 right. Um, what a... <laughs> I don't know if we want to go off no. politics, but what a bunch of nuts. One of these days we will, because John and I have been talking a lot about that. So um, <clears throat> question for you. Um, a lot of people think about Seattle and specifically <coughs> – excuse me. I'm going to pull a huck here. Yeah. Off. Um, the the depression thing and and like all these most you know all these musicians what? that have been dying recently everybody it's like it's heroin it's drugs it's depression it's it's sadness but it's also amazingly talented are those things true is that what kind of what kind of lifestyle did you have growing up and where does that all play in your mind being you, there you know I I think that that's something people like to say about Seattle because it's dark and it, you know looks like it does out here today pretty much all yeah. winter yeah but um. I don't think statistically it's backed up, and it certainly wasn't my experience. I mean, people in Seattle read more books and see more movies because those are indoor activities. But, <laughs> but you know, Kurt Cobain's a, a, a good example. Like, if you ever went to... He's from Aberdeen, Washington, which is a mill town out on the peninsula near the coast. And um, if you'd ever been there, it was a dying mill town when he was being raised. Um You'd see why he was so angry. Like it's yeah. a, it, to be a smart, creative person growing up in that town would have been a miserable experience. Um, so, you know, I think that explains like part of we partly how that became. You know, yeah, his music was was labeled as Seattle, but he wasn't from Seattle. Well, he was but, from. But that's a, what I'm saying the easiest connected dots <clears throat> is because it always yeah. rains, so you're just yeah. depressed and sad. Right. But, I mean, but I don't think it. I've read somewhere that that's not statistically supported, and uh, it certainly wasn't my experience as a kid. I loved growing up there. It was it was bucolic, really. The time when I was there was no traffic unless there was an accident. There was we still had pro sports teams. Like it was a it was a it was a great time and place to be from somewhere. Nice. Um, and what was and, and and did the weather have an impact on on, on your growing? Like mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a Four Seasons guy, so obviously I, you know that had a little bit of impact on what you did during the year. Right and and how where you gauged yourself in interests? No, it didn't. In fact, on, before I came over here, I was arguing with my kids' nanny to let them go play outside, like because you know the, we played in the rain. Yeah. Like if you didn't, yeah, if you, you didn't were play, stay inside all <laughs> you never, year round. You never like, played. You, so you know you 
Gore-Tex was invented up there because you yeah. needed it, and people don't wear use umbrellas. You, before it got really cosmopolitan as it is today, 20 years ago, you'd recognize the people from out of town who were all walking down the street carrying umbrellas. Yeah. Um, you were a puddle jumper. You jumped in puddles. Yeah, yeah I mean, damn we right. jumped in puddles growing up. Climb trees in the rain, did it all. You know, it was, it was you, the weather didn't bother you at all. And so you, you went, were more of an outside kid than an inside kid. Sure, sure. We were outside as much as possible. And when um, you say we, how big was your family? Uh, I'm the oldest of three. Okay. But, you know, it was one of the, it was that era where, you know, you got kids, you got play dates. You know, we didn't have play dates. You, you just, just left outside. the house. Yeah. And then you'd come back for dinner. Yeah. Maybe. Unless you're having dinner at a friend's, you yeah. know? Or you try to eat both dinners. Yeah, we, right. we always <laughs> joked about that. There was always the, uh, you, the, the nights you didn't want to go home when you were supposed to, and the, and the parents are driving around the station wagon yelling your name while you're hiding behind bushes, and they just stop. They're like, I know you're behind the bush. Would you just please come out? And you're like, I'm not behind the bush. I'm not, uh, I don't want to come home right now, which is stupid. You're just like, come home, get something to eat, and go the fuck back yeah, outside. Yeah, I don't back care. Back outside, yeah. I just wanted to have a little bit of control over you. That's it. Now we have so much control over our kids. I well, don't like play dates, by the way. It's so weird to have to schedule time to have fun. Well, a while back, my, my daughter said to me, she was like wanting to go outside, and I was watching the end of a game, and I was like, in five minutes, I can come out with you. And she's like, she's complaining. I was like, go out now. Just go out. And, you know, we have a fenced-in yard. Like, it's, you know, totally yeah, safe. You're not We're telling her to go play in traffic. You're going to go out in the yard. Exactly. And yeah. this thing that we built and paid money for so that they'd feel safe in it. And she's like, but who's going to supervise me? And then I was like, I paused the game. I was like, Go outside. <laughs> yeah, now you have to go outside you, you, and you be unsupervised. That's right. I was like, I was a bit of a rebellious kid, and the idea that one of my kids would demand to be supervised made me want to throw up. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Do you have a whistle? <laughs> no. God, a whistle. And one of those uh, reflective, uh, you put on a reflective uh, vest Ugh. and a whistle while you watch your kids play. Yeah, it, it can get pretty crazy. So when did you start getting interested in the, the, the world of, uh, of, I guess, filmmaking? Well, I was I was interested in it. I was really into, into movies and, and TV as a kid, but really movies. My mom had a love for it and passed it on to me. And um, again, is this because you were inside when it was fucking rainy? Or <laughs> no, he already clarified. He well, no, care. but I mean, like you said, you saw more movies. Do you think you saw more movies? And yeah, I don't think so. No. no, I remember like we just Bellevue was this small town with a few theaters, and we could walk down to the down to the town square and see a movie. I saw Towering Inferno when I was like ten <laughs> at the theater with me and a buddy, and you know. It, we, it just was part of part of my upbringing. And you remember, they used to have you know double features like every Saturday at the theater back then too. And so yeah. you'd go, parents would drop you off, and you'd spend six hours there, and they'd <laughs> they, be happy you were oh gone. Oh my god, and, yeah. You know. But now, when you say it, it, your mom had a love for that, define what that means. Well, like, she she grew up she grew up you know she was like that first era of teenagers. She was born during the war, World War Two, and so she was you know a teenager at, in the late fifties, and so she. You know that era was was big on movie th- on movies, and she was um, you know I forget, but Hollywood made like hundreds of movies a year as opposed to dozens now, and you know every and they'd go living in New York and New Jersey like they'd go to get out of the to get out of the heat. The theaters were air conditioned, so she and they, you know the, back then also the movies would just play on a continual loop all day. So if you walked in in the middle, you'd oh. stay and watch, <laughs> watch the first half of the next showing. So she, you know, that was kind of, she talked about that as a kid when, when we were young and she just, she always liked watching movies, you know, the late show on TV or whatever. And so, um, so she, you know, I just was around that and, and fell for it myself. But, um, you know, example now, TCM is a, is a Turner channel classic I, movies, which I love, you know, I watch it, I watch it a lot, um, record stuff on it and they have a film festival every year here in Hollywood. 
at the Chinese and at the El Capitan and all. And um, she comes down every year and we buy passes to it and we go together. Okay, so, oh, that's nice. cool. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that we do once a year. Together. And when you say they have film festivals, so what kind of stuff are they showing? It's, they're showing old movies. Okay, it's the Turner Classic Movie Film, film festival. festival, and they show like what I saw Deliverance a couple of years ago. Ooh, with your mom? No, she, oh. we we, <laughs> like, we split up a lot. Yeah. These, yeah. But you know, she'll pick something from her era, and I'll pick some. But <laughs> you think was, he's going to say a Frank Cameron movie? Yeah. Like, we saw you know Deliverance. <laughs> yeah. It was it was really cool. Burt Reynolds, Voight, um, uh, Ned Beatty. And the director John Borman were all there oh, they, talking what? beforehand. Holy and, shit! And the stories they were telling, like it was, it was really great. Then um, I saw Reds with my mom, and and Warren Beatty spoke beforehand. And so, whoa! But also, I've seen like I saw something from the '30s. I forget what it was called, but some you know that's the other thing. It shows movies you didn't heard of. But you're like, I'm gonna go check that out. And sometimes they're really cool. So, yeah, I, I love movies. And and but I didn't move down here as early as I might have because. And and I I wasn't living in Seattle at the time, but I, I've moved around a bit. But as an adult, but I just didn't. I never was really wanted to live in L.A. You know, I'd visited it. I was had heard always. You know, the traffic and it just wasn't my kind of. You know, I'm a Seattle guy, not an L.A. guy. You know, like I love this weather. I'm not big on being hot all year round. Yeah. Um. And so I put off moving down here until I was like 30, where you know, so I could have gotten in the business a little earlier, but it worked out. Um. And I've been here 20 years now, and it's, and I, it's great. What so, did you... Yeah, as I say, so what did you do? Like, okay, let's... Two things I would like to ask. When did you know that you had strong interests um, in being in film and television? And was it film or was it television? And was there something specific that inspired you? And then did you do that early on and messed around with it? Or did you wait until you moved here in the 30s? And then what did you do in the in-between time? Well, I'm, I can be a bit of a procrastinator. And so, especially when I was in my 20s, I was, you know, more interested in have experiencing things than yeah. you know than doing things which and so, is recommended i think uh, it, it worked out for me so so i i knew i wanted to get in the business and movies it was always movies that i thought of okay but because you know back then there wasn't good tv you know like it's not like now where there's so many great tv shows or the movie guys have moved into making tv and like yeah you know it was it was miami vice or whatever but people you know, like, but but also um, people used to laugh at tv like i heard robert de niro when danny devito got the call to do taxi he called de niro and de Niro's like what you need to do tv you need to do tv you don't want to do tv don't do that show that's tv and then he did it and of course like, i mean we wouldn't know danny devito if he didn't do tv right. martini from one flew over the fucking cuckoo's nest <laughs> right right um so so i am um, so i i didn't i avoided it i was thinking about it, i was planning on it but i had never gotten around to it like actually doing anything about it and then a friend of mine's um husband was directing an indie film this was in 95 and it was shooting in texas and they were i was like i want a job like give me you know where, where were you at this time i was i was in i was living in hawaii at the time uh, but i was splitting time between there and seattle okay and i was for after college i which i didn't do in the usual time period i went back later um, I imported clothing from Southeast Asia for a while. Of course you and did. So, <laughs> so I was living in Hawaii selling the huh. stuff there and flying from there to Indonesia. I'm going to stop um, you there for a second. Were you taking these jobs because it would take you somewhere? Was that your, your level of interest? Or were you actually into interested in doing importing? Like The clothing thing happened because I was, I, was, um, I was traveling through Southeast Asia. And I brought some stuff back. This is when I was like 23. I brought stuff back for some friends. And um, they were all getting rave reviews about it. Like people were like stopping them on the street, asking them where they got it. So I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Then, then I went to a Grateful Dead concert in Oakland at the, um, at the auditorium, or Kaiser, what became known as Kaiser. And the, um, 
the, I was, I met these, there were these cute girls walking around the shopping area, you know, I went up to talk to them and they were like, oh, we're not going to the concert. They were rich kids from the Berkeley Hills who'd just come down to shop. So I was like, that's interesting. And then the next morning I woke up bleary eyed from, from the show and I opened the, <laughs> sure, chron- from the show, we got it from the show, <laughs> opened the Chronicle and there's an ad for tie dyes and other hippie kind of stuff in uh, Macy's, a full page ad in the Chronicle. And I'm like, all right, I called my buddy who I'd known since, since first grade who's an MBA from Notre Dame. I was like, there's a business opportunity. Let's, let's, do, let's do something. So we scraped together a couple of grand, and I flew over to Indonesia and bought a bunch of clothing. We came, flew to Honolulu and had to talk my way through customs with it because we were half-assing it. Yeah. It's not like we'd gone and gotten a customs broker yet or any of that. So, and I'd been drinking the entire flight from... from <laughs> how, long, how long of a flight? It's a nine-hour oh, flight. Okay. And right. So I'm drunk... And I'm 23 years old, and I'm wearing flip-flops. And, and I just started talking. I lapsed into pigeon, which I lived in Hawaii, so I could kind of do at the time. And, you know, and I just like, started spouting pigeon to this guy. Like, you know, Explain, please. Well, the Hawaiians the, speak a pigeon English, some of them. Okay. And so you, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a broken English, basically. Got it. Okay. And it, so I just started speak, you know, doing my best pigeon impression, which probably wasn't even that good. But this guy was finally, he just took pity on me. He was like, oh, go ahead. You just me. warmed down, is what you were saying. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You're like, I'm not How leaving. How much stuff were you bringing in? Well, that first trip was that a couple thousand dollars worth of stuff. It was a couple of big boxes. So um, not much. Like, not. It, it was, was like, but, it was a couple to, hundred items of clothes. There wasn't a truck backing up to collect no. it as you were no, trying to No, but still, you have to claim and you have to be. Sometimes you have to pay, right? You have to pay some sort of. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got if you if you're doing it clearly for resale, then there's then you can't like you got to go through the proper channels, which right. we did every trip after that. Like we we did we became legit. And sure, we, but the for that first stuff we we went on tour and sold it at dead shows, and made a bunch of money with it and poured that money back in the business and did it for a number of years. Wow. Um, but you know I'd never I was like a hippie. I didn't want to be a businessman. You know, so I was like. I was ready to move to, to get move into this business, and you know, and so my buddy, husband was like, "Yeah, come down, you know, come work. We'll get you a job for for free." You know, so I interned on this. Movie. You know, that's not a job. You know that, yeah, now, right? We use the word job, job and for free. free. Well, <laughs> it, you know, it was an internship, <laughs> yeah, 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 which, yeah. which you know, I was twenty nine years old. And before and, this, you you didn't you didn't go to college for this. You did not, or did you? Or did you have any any production background whatsoever before this step? To Texas, none. Okay, none. Right. So I so I drove to Texas from Seattle. I went home, got my car, drove to, and then I I um I worked on this show. It was called it was called Standoff, and um, Keith Carradine was in it. Dennis Haysbert, um, Robert Sean Leonard, Nastasha Henstridge. Wow! And um, it was like a two million dollar indie movie. And it was like a Waco siege kind of a movie. My friend uh, wrote and directed, and um. You know, it was the first couple of days I was just, I was a PA, I was standing around and just watching this shit happen and, you know, being in a Siberian lockup, you know, it's really far from any action and, you know, just totally clueless what was going on. But it started to click a couple of days into it. And, uh, and so I started, you know, hustling more and getting more involved. And, you know, so and that's how you become, you know, you, you impress people. That's how you people. learn. Like, that's you how learn you, and that's... And, yeah. yeah. And you, like, if you're on it, if you're the guy who's in there with the Apple box when they're calling for one first or whatever, you know, that, you know, that people notice. They, and then they, they start, start calling for they you. They start just asking yeah. for you. Exactly. Yeah. And so at one point, uh, the other PAs were all locals and they all <laughs> were lazy and, and didn't care. And, and, and <laughs> at one point, they, like, fired them all. And there was one day where I was the only PA on set. And that was the most exhausted I've ever been in my life. 
<laughs> but uh, fortunately, it was all interior they were shooting, and so it wasn't the lockups weren't as hard. But um, you know, and that when that show was over, the producers were like, "We have a we have a show in a couple months in uh, L.A. You should come and, and work on it. We'll pay you this time." And I was like, "Okay," and that that's uh, how it started. And you know, the, what, do you know what show was that? Do you remember? That was called The Alarmist. It was Stanley Tucci and da- David Arquette. Oh wow! Um, Kate Capshaw. Um, and that, uh, yeah, that was right, right after Stanley Tucci did Big Night. So while we were doing it, he was expecting a nomination for, for that and, and didn't get it. And I was with him in the car. Actually, I was driving him when, when he, um, he didn't get it. But he was a really great guy. I loved working with him. But the funny story So I have, you, your, your face is a bad memory for him. <laughs> He's yeah. like, oh, you're the guy that was there when I didn't get nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> the funny story I have from that show is David, I was David Arquette's driver most of the time. I had a. I was older. I had a nicer car, and they wanted. They were like, "You can pick up David." David, you never knew where he was going to be. He. I had a pager. The production gave me a pager. Is this, is this, is this David? Yeah. Uh, David Good Times, David. Yeah. Okay. So every morning he, he's still David Good Times. I think. Well, you know, but I mean, yeah. notoriously yeah. Good Times, yeah. right? Okay. He'd page me like where he was, and you know, and I'd get some number, and I'd call him back, and he'd like give me directions to you know, he'd tell me the address, <laughs> and I'd come and pick him up. So one night after work, we're driving by. Um, that strip club that's uh, that's in the, on the west side, um, Tropicana. I forget what it was called, but it's but but it's um, it was on Pico. And uh, he's like, "We got to stop." And I'm like, "I'm supposed to get." He's like, "No, we got to stop." And it was Oscar night, right? So so we, we we go in, and he's like, "I'll pay for the lap dances." It's fun, you know. So <laughs> anyway, so so I'm sitting next to him. We're getting lap dances from these two women, and I look over the girl's shoulder to the TV where I see Nicolas Cage and David Arquette's sister sitting in the front row of the Oscars. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, Dude, we gotta this go. is so fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> that was my welcome to Hollywood moment. Where were you? So it's one thing to be invited to, to Los Angeles to work, but where did you go? Like, what was your plan? I mean, did you know people down here that... I, um, I knew people that I'd met on the show because a bunch of the people in the show, were the movie LA. before, were so from your LA. So your new fake best friends said you can come stay with us? Well, or how did it... I, I was, had started dating the production designer or oh, the art director. Sorry, she was the art director. Okay. And so... This part I, was left out, but so yeah. I, You had so, a very productive first yeah, job. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> I got in a relationship. I, I got hired to another job. <laughs> So I stayed with her for the first few weeks until we broke up, and then I stayed with the first AD after that. Um, and, how, so uh, let me ask you this: how, how, how did that how did that breakup go? Because obviously you were you had a very specific reason why you were crashing in town, and she's got a she who kicked who to the curb in that relationship? Um, Unless it's too painful to talk. About. I, no, 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 no. Because then <laughs> I'm because kidding. Then it was so like, long then you ago. Have to have that conversation with the first day AD of like I need a place to stay. <laughs> yeah, to I don't work. have anywhere to live now. Right. I mean, that's the awkward part of like trying to put your well, cleats in. She worked on this show too. Ooh, but okay. I, you know, it just, it wasn't really working out. And so, um, so I, I did it and I, for the only time in my life, I got a cigarette, an ashtray thrown at my head. Ooh. It, it didn't land, but it shattered on the wall behind now, me. Did you already have a place to stay before you did the... I, I didn't. I wasn't oh. that... I wasn't very calculating. In fact, I was stupid. Like, I should have just like... <laughs> you were probably I was, thinking like, we'll just break up and then I'll just live here and we'll be friends. <laughs> I, I, yeah, basically. Yeah. That. And so had I, been, had I been calculating, I would have been like, waited two more weeks and broken up with her. Did yeah. she at least get some of the, uh, the clothing that you had left over from your, your trips and <laughs> Listen, as a, parting, a, as a parting gift, I've got you some. I don't nice- want your fucking tie dye. <laughs> did you, did you, did you, did you tie dye? And then you had to see her at work. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, you didn't think that out at all. No. Just stick through it to the show. Now, did, did, did the ashtray get thrown at you on set after the fact? No, or was no, it no, after no, the, the break? It was in her apartment. Because that would have been funnier if it was two days later as your yeah, you're like, Arthur Bastards is an ashtray. Flight. Hey, I'm supposed to drop these off to you. Oh, my God, she's throwing things at and me. And then you hear on the radio like 10 minutes later, does anybody know where that ashtray prop is that we need to get for continuity? <laughs> it's broken. There's yeah, only it, one exactly. made. So, um, so there. So now you're here. And is it, did you become a permanent resident from that moment on? Yes, I did. I, I, I moved I, after the show wrapped. I went and got my stuff in the U-Haul and came back. Now, did apartment. you have another place, or you were like, you know what, this is I'll, whatever happens happens at this point? Um, no, I. Well, I still had my. I still had my place in Seattle, which I then packed up from and left. It was. Um, but I, you know. Your your career is like a family tree. You know, you can trace every job. At least I can to the first job. Somebody who yeah. knows somebody who knows. Yeah, somebody. and so no, you definitely can. Yeah, yeah. So after that second job, the first one here in L.A., then I had other opportunities, and um, you know, it all, it all. I was I had an I had um an affinity for the production side for AD work. So I became a first AD very quickly. So that was really? your agenda initially. Like, you know, that's that thing when you're a PA. Well, you're, you're just trying to figure it out. Like, you, if, if you care. Like, you're talking about the guys down yeah. in Texas. They're lazy. They don't care. Right. The job is a job. But if those guys actually, PA until they're 45. Yeah. but That's he, all they're ever hired you went for. in and you're like, I'm going to watch what everybody does. I'm going to determine what I may have interest in. And then I'm going to start guiding myself towards that. Is that kind of your... Well, I wanted to be a director. Right. And so I thought, you know, and I it was... AD work was happening for me. The ADs were impressed with me and they were offering me other shows. And, and I thought, well, first AD is a good spot. Like you're right there in every conversation with the DP and the director and you can like really like be like learning a lot of stuff. And so that's, that's what I started to pursue. Yeah. And it also just kind of worked out that way. Like I was, I became a first AD a year to the day that I first stepped on a set. And the, and the reason it happened that way was, so I got second second jobs after that PA job in LA, and then I got second 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 AD jobs, and then on my second one of the second AD jobs, it was, it's a lot of second. That is the that's the worst the, title the, in the, the second <laughs> second AD is yes. like the weirdest yeah. thing. You're like, but, wait, what do you do? Just paperwork? Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> so I was a second second twice, and yeah. then I was a second AD twice, and then that that last time. I was watching the AD and the DP like all of a sudden start screaming at each other. And I was thinking, this is somehow going to affect me. And sure enough, he like, he turns, storms off set, he hands me his walking and says, I'm done, you t- take over. And so I, so I had, I moved up. And these were all indie films you were working on at the time? Yeah. You were staying in film? That, yeah. I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, at that time, there was still quite a bit of production happening in town. So it wasn't like these huge gaps where nobody was making a lot of movies in town. There was a lot going on. That's right. Then, right. There was a, this was just before it all started moving to Canada and, and Eastern Europe. And it was, there was a lot of, of, of indie movies in town. Yeah, a lot, especially. And this was when about? This was in 97. 97. Okay. And so I was, um, I was working on this thing called Some Girl. It had this great young cast like Juliette Lewis and Giovanni Ribisi and, and a bunch of people. And, um. And the a first eighty stormed off set, and so my very first, and they were right getting ready to do this um, process trailer shot with a jib, and so you know, for people listening, like that's pray, yeah. that's this that's this big trailer that you put a put a car on, and and sometimes they have jibs attached to them, and you do which is these, a giant camera with like an extended crane arm, right? And you do these shots of of that simulate them driving. But but uh, but aren't right. They're and, just on the truck as the truck drives right. around, and yeah. And so, I'd never even been on it before because you're second AD. You don't get to go on the truck, you know. So, 
It, that so you're bullshitting your way right now, right? Well, you no, have to. They, they, they asked me to move up. Like, they had no choice. Like, I was only, you know, we were so in yeah. the middle of the day. You're, yeah. just yeah. like, dude, they're not getting in. another guy in there yeah. to figure out what's going on at that point. And the DP, having just run off the AD, was really nice to me. <laughs> she, <laughs> so she was like... Well, that's good. Yeah, so... Um, so that first day was a little rough. I was learning a lot. But but after that, it just started, I just kind of naturally was good at it. And so so it started happening. And and I did the rest of the show, and then I got other shows. And so I was the first AD for a number of years. And how did so how did you, you know, that's, that's the biggest problem a lot of people have when you start in production, um, is how do you go from that production work and, and, and completely move over into the creative side? It is not as easy... Because a lot of well, it's like people see you and they go, no, no, you're production. You, you stay on the production side of it. You're the nuts and bolts. The creative is a whole different process of coming up. Right? But I think when, but I think the steps he took. I think going if you know you if you want to be a director, who are the people that stand next to who would like who are the people that are closest to the director? No, are they creative? Not necessarily. They're they're you know they carry out orders. They do exactly what they're told. They do they follow the schedule. Right. But at the same time, you're also seeing ex- if if you're smart and if you pay attention, like you should. Then you're seeing what the director also does and how they behave. So yeah. So my guess, my question is, is how did you make that transition? And, and do you, yeah, what, what was, was the leap? transition? Well, and- yeah, um, the I I was doing the Andy Dick sketch comedy show for MTV. Um, this was in 2000 nice. now, I think. And uh, you know, Andy was the director. I mean, I'd met Andy. Enough before. said. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's. We now we know how and you got your first directing wreck. gig. <laughs> Marquette showed up. And, uh, all right, so anyway. I'd, I'd met Andy on uh, the, the VMAs, uh, the short films we did for that, and um, him and Ben Stiller, and they, it was really funny. And he, you know, Andy said, oh, I've got a show. You should come, you know, do it. And so I did. And Andy was, is really funny and really talented. Like, you know, he's a real asshole and a real, you know, like, problem sometimes. But, yeah. but, but he's really a funny guy. You know, like, in fact... I did three. I did two scenes of it and a bunch of other things with him. And you know, you'd always see. I see Andy and other co- other comedians. Like I'll see people and I'm like, oh, that's an Andy yeah, thing they just did. You yeah. know, and like the guy, for all of his wackiness, is talented. Unlike you know, some other people, right, <laughs> right, right. who are just this outright obnoxious and yeah, crazy right. with no absolute. So, so, um, so you know, it was a good experience because the DP and I were, were he wasn't so concerned with the shots. He was concerned, you know, and the DP and I were were involved t- okay. intimately together. But also on the second season, I decided I'd write some sketches because I realized what, you know, I also would sit in the writer's room sometimes when Andy was going through the stuff with him. And But can you do that without pissing people off? Well, the writers on that show were all really good guys. And I, I asked the head writer and he said, sure, you know, okay, write a couple, right. you know, and he... And and so you, were, you like, did it smart. You weren't just like, "Hey, I wrote a bunch of sketches, motherfuckers." Here you go. Yeah. And you're like, Who but are this, you? And you know this. This happens sometimes. Well, it, it happens on tech scouts sometimes. And like people that shouldn't, you know, a Speak production up. designer will start having create like, well, you know what the, would be really funny if the guy said this or did. And you start seeing that dynamic where like they're they're crossing a line sometimes. Oh. Where like it was not a discussion that was had beforehand. People just start. Dipping in the creative, and it can create, it can mess up the dynamics. So that's what. I was oh, curious. absolutely. And and to go back to my very first movie, I saw a PA, the the director was who I knew, and and the DP were having a conversation on what the on their shots, 
And this VA like was standing there, and he started chiming in on what he thought. Oh God, year. come on! And, and the the producer like grabbed him and walked him away, and that was his last day. But the you know, so that was I learned that right away. Like, you, but I knew it anyway. Like, yeah, it just, it's like, common you know, sense. Like, if you're if you're the lowest man on the totem pole, it's best to keep your mouth shut and pay attention. But again, you know, sometimes you get excited. You get yeah. excited. You get you can but be you in the middle of the process. If, if it's your best, if you're a PA and your best friend is directing, and you're like, hey, what if? And he could just go shut up. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. But if you don't, if you're hired, hired. I agree. I'm just saying I can understand youth and being ignorant to the situation and yeah. getting excited because they make eye contact. I was, I was, my ignorance came when I would be, I would say things like not to anybody, but like to other PAs, like, well, why the fuck didn't they do that? You know what I mean? And it's like, and looking back, I'm like, oh, that because scheduling didn't work and it was a different day. And did, you know what I mean? There's like, other things you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I learned that, but I never like, so you started writing. Yeah. So, so I, so I wrote, um, I wrote a couple of sketches. I'd seen what, you know, Andy liked. And he liked little people, and he liked big people. Like he, you know. So was John on the show? So yeah, we got a midget, and we got so, Andre the Giant. So I, so I wrote this sketch called Big. I was, I saw this Big and Tall shop one day, and I was like, oh, and I had this idea. So I wrote this sketch called Big and Tall Andy, where Andy goes into a Big and Tall shop, and they kick him out because you He's know, not big and tall. this huge, huge guy is the guy <laughs> working in there, and he's like, they kick him out. He's like, I'm sorry, you can't shop here. So, so it's a discrimination sketch, really. But anyway. And so Andy comes back in with a midget on his shoulder. I'm sorry, little person. The guy who was in, the little bald guy who was in all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It was oh. him. But anyway, he's a great actor. So, and this big trench coat. And he comes in and, they, you know, and the guy figures out that it's Andy fake. And they, and they, they chase each other around the shop and they, it's slapstick. Um, and he, they get dragged out. And then you know, they have this moment out on the curb where hopefully someday we'll be able to shop in a store like that. And... Um, Andy loved it, of course, because I I knew he would because he loved little people and, and he loved, loved big slapstick. And, you know, <laughs> you're gonna have big, a little fella on your shoulders. Are you kidding me? I love it. A big fat guy chasing a little, like, yeah. you know. So anyway, so so he loved it. He didn't know I'd written it. I had you know, oh, okay. I had the head writer, and then once he found out, he like he said, "Do you want to direct it?" And I was like, "Absolutely." So I got to direct it. Um, so he's a pretty giving guy. I mean, that's <clears throat> he, thing, he didn't it, have to do that to you at all. Andy was, you know. I, Andy's can be problematic. Like there were times we were doing a production meeting that he was supposed to be in, and all of a sudden the stage person comes storming in the room, going, "Andy is up on the roof naked with teenagers," and so like we had to go and like deal mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, and so and this is you know, so stuff like that would happen, <laughs> you know. But but it, but he was a good guy. Like I I liked him. I, the best. The best Andy story I have is like the, the network was on his case the second season about improving. It was costing them money, and it was like, this is what he does. Like yeah. I can't believe you compl- knew that going in, right? Yeah, yeah. like this. Yeah. You know, works, I had yeah. the producer actually tell say to me once, like, why can't he do that one first? I'm like, because it takes every seven takes to get there. To that one, like, yeah. what are you talking about? You know, yeah. like. Sometimes you're working with people who don't have any idea no what that, yeah, our yeah. business is. No creative like, bones know. in their body. So Andy comes storming in this one morning, and he's like, the network, he goes, Michael Shea? He looks at me right in the eye. He's like, the network wants me to do this verbatim. So I'm going to do this verbatim. And he sits down in the chair. He was playing a coach in a coach's office at his desk and starts doing the script as unfunnily as you can possibly imagine. And he sits there for a half hour and is deliberately not funny until they finally, the network comes to set and they come and they take him away and they, they start screaming at each other in the trailer. And when he walked out, when the network walked out with him, I turned to the crew, I was like, 
And that's why you don't fuck with the talent. <laughs> because nobody, there's not a court in the land that could prove that he's in breach of contract yeah. and deliberately not being funny. Right. Like, it, it, you asked for this, I'll give you the worst I'll performance you, I, yeah. you've ever seen. But at least I'm yeah. performing. It's a performance. Yeah. So you can't say that I'm not doing my job. Right? That's the thing. Yeah. It's, it falls you don't like the... when I do it verbatim. You like when I do the improv. Well, then let me go back to doing the improv. How does well, that sound? And so why is Andy funny? Like, break it down for me. Like, good luck with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he's funny because he's funny. So it was, it was a great lesson for everyone in the room. And I think even those network people about, you know, you just don't, don't do that. Yeah. You know, don't, don't do it. So where did you go from there? So then... This was right around the time that reality TV started happening. And so, um, so I started doing some ADing on, on multi-camera shows, uh, big like, competition shows and, and that kind of thing. And those things were like the Wild West. Like people yeah. didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. Sometimes they wouldn't hire ADs at all. Like a lot of the shows didn't. And so, but when, the ones that did, you know, I'd get it running for them properly. And, and, but they'd still have missing elements like field directors. You know, like, well, we need to shoot two scenes at once, but we only have one director. And I'm like, I'll do it. And so I'd take three cameras and go shoot a scene while the director had yeah. four cameras and was doing another one. And so I did that a bunch. And then on one show, I was doing this show in Florida. It was called King of the Jungle. It was like, supposedly Tarzan? like Survivor. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but, but with animals. Wait, um, what? Okay. And it didn't do well. But But they were doing two seasons back to back. And the first season, season two... Um, they didn't like the the directors, the director, and so so the the executive producer offered me the chance to direct season three, and um and I did, and um and again I kind of had a natural affinity for because I'd been around it a bunch, I'd been listening to directors in my head, so I'd been running the floor for them, I've been, and so um so I so I did it, and it and they liked what I did, and so I started getting other jobs from that for a few years. The thing where well, you're transitioning, you know, it's not a, it's it's tough to transition. Not not just it's from back and forth a little bit. Yeah, so I was ADing some and directing some and But you were willing you no. were what you were willing to um like volunteer yourself like cuz you probably my guess is you didn't get paid any more money to direct. You it was no. like, you know, it was just more work and more pressure on you, but you took that because you knew that's where you wanted to go. Was there was there any kind of like hesitation or like you know maybe i'm not this isn't i'm not cut out for this or were you just like you just went at it and you're trial by fire and you're like figured it out on your own or just by watching other people i mean directing's not even directing a reality show like you've seen ones that are directed poorly they look like sh like real shit like they look bad and then you've seen ones that are directed amazing and you're like well okay that doesn't look like a reality show that's pretty fantastic yeah, well, you know, it, it, I certainly learned stuff, you know, while I was doing it. And the, the scenes, the fir those first scenes I was doing were small things like conversations between a couple people, which with three cameras, like, you got to be pretty dumb to fuck that up. You but know? I've you know. seen people who, I've seen that fucked up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I do. I, I, you know, I, and not just in reality. I mean, in the script, like indie stuff, I've seen, like, I'm like, there's no wide shot of anything. Yeah. It just cuts. But that's the thing. Like, there's, you know, there's a there's somewhat of a math to this, you know what I mean? Like like you need to get this and you need to get that and you need to get the watch, you you know, and so once you get that down, like the math of it, then you can start being creative. Yeah. Then you can start doing the beautiful stuff. You can turn those into. You can start learning about lenses more and like moving the cameras further away and other other things. But the the beginning of it is pretty much a basic math, and I was good at math, I guess, when I was young. <laughs> um, but you know it. It's like even today, you know, it depends on the shows that I'm doing, 
how much the producers and network want to spend time on the look. Right. You know, like there's shows I've been told, like, we don't care what it looks like. I've been told that. Just get to the point. Like, you know, and then, then I do just, show this show oh. called Bachelor in Paradise where they really care what it looks like. And that shows a lot of fun for me to do because well, for a bunch of reasons because there's a bunch of great looking women in bikinis around. Right. And because the show's played for comedy and because I've got the resources and the support to make it look really cool. And um, I mean, yeah, what do, what do, what do, what do, you, do you like die inside when someone's like, hey, we don't care what this looks like? Or do you You're just like, say yes why, and do whatever? Why the fuck am I here is that then? Like, just you direct it you yourself. Want. No, I, well, this, uh, Sorry, I talked over this. <laughs> but, a, but a quick story, like, to, to get to that answer is that, you know, for a long, I had trouble in the early in my career, like, like on movies, you know, I would, I took it very seriously, my job as the AD to protect the director, you know, to make sure that the producers, and producers would often be like trying to fuck over the directors, which made no sense to me, but yeah, they, nonetheless, it would happen, and I'd be like, and these guys were almost always in the indie world, they were almost always writer directors, first movie, and you know, they would make these mistakes that I saw coming because they did the last guy did it too, and yeah. the guy before that, and you know, but they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know stuff that they needed to know, and so I like would fight for them, and people would get pissed at me. The producer would get, you know, and I wouldn't get other work because, you know, you were combative. You were, and, and I because was, you were trying to make them a good product. Yeah, because I, you know, to, I, I don't want to sound holier than that because I was caring too much. You know what I mean? So, so. And, you know, that carried off into my directing, too. Like, I'd fight with people. Like, no, you don't, you know. But people, they don't give a fuck. They don't want to work with the guy who's going to be trouble. You know, so so now, I don't do that. So when somebody says, we don't care what it looks like, the answer to your question is both. I yeah. die a little inside, and I think about my kid's private school. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm like, and, okay. And if they don't care what it looks like, can you then take your creative license and kind of make it look how you would want well, it to look? Well, I still... With I, the low shitty budget they give you. I still make it better looking than what they're asking for. Sure. Because I'm there because your name my is job. Gonna, and your name is going to be on it. Yeah. But there's times when, you know, you just have to, you just have to go. You yeah. just have to roll, even though yeah. it's not ready. So you started in film. Your interest sounds like it was in film. So where where's... Um, it, it's it's been a it's been a TV career for the most part, correct? For for the last ten years, yeah. yeah. For for directing too, right? Yeah, like mostly. I've so, only directed film. I mean, no TV. And only. so and so for you, do you still strive for this whole this film romance? Is that still there for you from your childhood and all that stuff? Or I, yes, I do still have the intention to um, to direct a film someday. I mean, I still I'm trying to spend some time writing. I have three little kids and a busy work schedule, so it's not always easy. John to totally do understands that. what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I have busy no work idea. schedule. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> see what you heard. I heard all the other stuff, <laughs> but. Um, you know, yes, that is still my intention. It's still still my my dream to do that someday. And would you prefer to get be, uh, get in, do more scripted uh, TV in general? You know, I I wouldn't mind doing that. Certainly, I I think I'm I'm prepared for that from what I've done. But you know, I really I do really love multicam directing. And even though it and in ways it's not as creative as some of these other other directing gigs. There is you know, you're not as involved in say the content. But you know that can be good and bad. Like I do this, I do this show, um, Cake Wars, which is which is a lot of fun. I really love doing it, and the company's great. With the Bleca, but, with the Bleca brothers? Um, no, it's a, it's the uh, company Super Delicious. Oh, okay. Um, and it's on Food Network. And uh, but I 
don't love cake myself, you know. So, so, <laughs> what? So, get out, out of my house. Craft service is just wedding cakes and shit. You're like, really? Can we get some fruit in here? <laughs> How about some ice cream? So, so yes, I'm much more of an ice cream guy. Than <laughs> Here's cake. an ice cream cake. But, but you know, so so the content of the shows I do, even like Bachelor in Paradise, isn't always something that like is my thing. Right. Whereas, you know, if I made my own movie, it'd be content that was my thing. Right, right, of course, you know? yeah. But, but nonetheless, the challenge of, you know, I did this... The wedding, or not the wedding, the proposal at the end of Bachelor in Paradise last season. I had 15 cameras in like three different spots, all, and I'm looking at the monitor all at once. And it was the, it's like sports, you know, the, 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 the need to be present enough to spread your consciousness over 15 monitors yeah. is a challenge and it's cool. Like I like doing it, I get high on it. Okay. Like when, 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 a scene, when a scene like that's done, my, I'm rushing, you know? Yeah. My endorphins are firing, and it's really just a lot of, a lot of fun. You know, it's really cool to hear that because a lot of times the, the first people hear the word reality and they just scoff, right? They go, ah, cheap, lazy, stupid, dumb. Like they can think of every negative category that they could possibly put in to think that there's no creativity, there's no challenge. It's just uh, throw up a camera over there and just let whatever the crazy is happening in front of the thing. Like that's the standard. So it's interesting. To, I mean, yeah, I mean, I couldn't even imagine what where you have to start. To have 15 cameras in position to get what you need. That in itself is, with, is ama- that's, that's, that's amazing. It's start with like, a great budget. Well, <laughs> that allow yeah, you to have 15 you know cameras. Saying, no, it's just like it removes all those negatives that people just stay but, but and go, that, all right, well, yeah, but what about, you know what I mean? It's, but that's also the point to anything in life is that it is what you make it. Like you said, you're not, it's not your content. You didn't write Bachelor. That's not your idea or anything. You were hired to direct it and make it look as nice as you can make it look. And that's what you did. You know what I mean? Like, I think you look towards, like everything is what you make. You could be like, yeah, you might not like a reality show. My brother works on a lot of reality. Do I don't like Jersey Shore. My brother doesn't watch Jersey Shore, but my brother gets to lay cable, sync cameras, and work with an amazing crew and, and travel all over the world. And he has a great time doing it. So it, it is what you make it. It's sure. not like, that's what I'm, yeah. but I mean, but I, but I, mean I, I go back to people who are like, wow, fuck reality and just wipe it out. And it's like, yeah, but you'd be destroying a lot of jobs and a lot of livelihoods and of, of hardworking people that aren't, you know, that aren't the upper guys that make all these shows that suck. It's like, well, it also sounds to me that, you know, when, when the time comes for you uh, to do a, um, a feature film, it's not like you can't take anything from that world and translate it over. Like, it goes back to that earlier conversation we had about Danny DeVito, where there used to be this like, oh, you do TV? Well, then clearly you know nothing about it. Right. There was a separation. There was a separation. You're not a movie sure. person. You know nothing. And that's not true, correct? No, exactly. That's not true at all. There's, there's plenty of knowing where to put the camera is knowing where to put the camera. You know? yeah. and, and, so I, and I've been placing cameras you know, for shots for, you know, for years now. And so I've, I've gotten a lot of good experience and, and, and learned a lot. Um, so yeah, it definitely. I, I'd be prepared when the time came. There are things I haven't been involved with that I'd need to, uh, to you know, learn quickly. But yeah, it's. Um, but again, then that's a challenge for you, and that's something you didn't do before, and then now you learned it, and you're like, oh shit, I can apply that to. Well, I also think that people have a misconception of directors that they just roll in on a golf cart with a bullhorn and just start saying things, and it's like he wears riding horse riding pants, and he has one of those big cones, and he has a old timey newspaper guy hat. But but if there's a lot of organization and a lot of time sitting down, you know, breaking down a script and, and doing a lot of actual organization 
emotional stuff that really helps you with the creative that I don't think that people understand that, that that can make or break how good of a director you can be is to be able to sit down and actually do some of the nuts and bolts work too. For sure. The prep is always really important. And, and that's, you know, some shows I get a lot of prep and, and that's great. And others I don't, and I have to kind of just go with it on the fly. And, but you know, the thing of the thing about it is, is it's about, it's like life, you know, it's, you got to prioritize, you know? So, so for example, even on Bachelor in Paradise, a show that, you know, that they want it to look good, they want it to look great, they give you the money to make it happen. There's still, the thing that's more important than it looking good is getting it. And so if yeah. somebody cries and walks off the set in the middle of the rose ceremony and walks into a dark corner with their back to us, yeah. we've still got to follow it. We've got to make the adjustments in the camera to get some kind of light on them, whatever yeah. we can. And we got to go with it. Because you know what? That's going to be on TV. Yeah. That is definitely going to be on TV. Crying, more, any crying, storming off, yeah, yelling. The shit we lit and made look beautiful, you know, sure, that's that'd be on TV too, but this is going to be in the teaser. Right. You know, this, and so, you know, now, on like a film... Do you have a cry guy? Like, is there somebody you work with, you're like, I know, who to, I know who's going to get me that other shit that people aren't thinking about. The Do you have a go-to? Shot. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's that one person that, for whatever reason, they always seem to be in the right place at the right time with that camera slung over their shoulder. I definitely have operators that I, that I prefer to have with me on every show. They because can, they can adjust, right? Yeah. And they read situations and go, I think they're listening. Like, be happening. For, for operators, listening, especially in reality, listening to what's happening is really important. A lot of those guys it, will tune it out. Yeah. yeah. And so there's the people that listen are, are really valuable because they they'll hear it. And they might even tip me off on it because I'm yeah. not listening to every conversation because yeah. I'm watching all of them. This guy right so, here is about to freak out. He's about to freak e- out. Exactly. D-camera. That kind of, you know. D-camera, D-camera. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, it certainly. Cool. Uh, with uh, um, two questions I, I, I have. One, uh, uh, did you have a nightmare scenario where you were like, oh, dear God, when is this going to be over? A thousand, like, I'm sure. A, well, one that sticks out for you, like when, even when it's happening, you're like, never going to forget this, ever going to forget this. Um, or I'm never going to work with this company or these people again. Uh, it's not necessarily slamming the company. I'm not but naming just a, I'm not Where you kind of like almost simultaneously like, this is horrible, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to laugh about this for the rest of my life because this is the silliness that is just I, it's I, beyond comprehension yeah there's been a there's been a number of times i'm I, you know where i was like i don't want to ever experience this again <laughs> um there was this one there's one movie i did a long you know ago where we were shooting on the beach and Ugh. the director um he just he just wouldn't listen you know it was, again it was the first timer and he didn't do what you know we would tell him and i don't mean telling him how to do his shots i mean tell him how to be efficient with his day you know like you block a scene you light the scene, you rehearse the scene, and then you shoot the scene. Like that's, I didn't invent that. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, there's a reason that's the order. Yeah. <laughs> and so we'd block a scene with him, and he'd go away in the trailer to work with actors or whatever while we were lighting it. And then he'd come back, and then he'd like, no, no, I want to change it, and re-block it. And, I, and you know, I'm like, now we got to relight it. And I'm like, dude, we're in Zuma. You know? I'm like, the sun is going to melt into that water this time yeah like and then we're done yeah. like we can't bring out lights and make it look like daylight and we're done shooting for the day like that's what's going to happen and three days in a row this went on like this and so at each one at the end of each one of these days there's a scene with the entire cast like seven people standing in the in this in a semicircle as a dolly moves back and forth shooting them shooting their conversation and then we did a wide of it and that's it because 
that's all we had time for. And then you, and you'll see the sun setting behind him. Like, and it's, it's, it was just so frustrating, uh-huh. you know, that he wouldn't like get with the program of you making his movie better of using his time better. <laughs> and so this one day I was like driving out there. I was like, you know, I'm going to fucking quit this job. I'm going to leave this business. And I, and I like, walk in and I like announce it to like the, you know, the people all sitting there and they all start busting out laughing. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, the DP just walked in and said that two minutes ago. <laughs> Everybody's walking through the door like, I'm fucking done. <laughs> and no one quit? No. no. But none <laughs> of us worked with them again either. No, but you know you know that sticking it out, even though it's a, it could be miserable, like quitting is like, yeah, I've wanted to quit jobs too, but also at the same time, I'm like, if I quit, those motherfuckers win. Like, I don't get their money. I'll take every dime they'll give me, and then I will just tell them to fuck off the next time they call me, yeah. which I've only really done like two or three times. Best moment? Um, we were really like well, meeting I, this, John Huck. Oh, well, sorry. You know, I mean, you know it, maybe just something. Maybe it was Hollywoody. Maybe it's something the three back. Like mom would be mom and would love this moment. Like I don't know, just something where you were like, I'm so glad that I'm doing what I'm doing. You well, know, this past past spring, I did this show called Tour Group for Bravo, which hasn't aired yet. Um, so it, in many ways, this show also could have ended up in the in the worst moment category. But we traveled around the world. I did production, pre-production in London, and then we shot in Morocco, Kenya, the Maldives, Sri Lanka, Thailand, oh. and, um, and Tokyo in Japan. And um, we were in Kenya, and we were, we were shooting this scene where they were going out on safari, and they were watching these, these water buffalo and this, these lions have a standoff. And, um, you know, the sun starts setting, and it was just like, unbelievably gorgeous and it was the coolest thing and i just i was just like i can't believe i'm getting paid to do yeah, this yeah and that show we had a number of those moments like like every the week the structure was each week we'd be in a different country and at the end of the week we'd have a b-roll day with you know, where interviews would also happen and then a um then a day off and so on the on the B-roll day, which I, I wouldn't go out for B-roll normally, but in the safari, You're I like, did. yeah, I will go <laughs> everywhere we're going to shoot yeah. B-roll, yeah. And so we went out for the whole day and just shot all these amazing animals. And I went up in a helicopter over the safari and we <sighs> shot animals. And then on our day off, I'd arranged with the guys to take me and just a couple of guys out for the entire day. And they had this thing they call the Big Five, which is water buffalo, um, rhino, elephant, um, lion. lion, and cheetah. Yeah. And we saw... Or leopard, excuse me. Oh. And we saw all five of them that day. Fuck. And it was just like insanely amazing. Wow. I took my kids on a whale watching tour for uh, school last year and I, I, I saw a dolphin. That's, that's a way so that's, worse that's, that's, that's story. My... Um, <laughs> that's awesome, though. You're right. And you're right. Like, you got paid to go there. It's like somewhere you would pay to go. You and, didn't have to. And so that's how I feel. But even when, like, when I've shot in a factory, an abandoned factory in Pennsylvania, you know, it's like, how cool is it to be here? Like you'd never be inside a factory in Pennsylvania, you know, an old broken down steel mill. Yeah. Like it's just what we get to do. The places we get access to is I love about this business. Like so, you just so get, many downtown warehouses I've been in that I'm like, you could shoot a horror movie in here. It's scary as shit, but none of my friends are ever going to get to just walk in here for any reason. No, like, you, you, yeah. Sometimes you forget that there are many people and, Good for them, but they every day of their life is the same thing. They go to the same place. They go to the same job for 35, 40 mm-hmm. years, the same cubicle, whatever, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just like there's that thing of pursuing something, a dream, if you will, an interest, as you will, that, that takes you to these crazy places, and as long as you appreciate it, 
That's the cool part. If you just become one of those jaded, like I don't care, whatever, and you, you can't, collecting. you can't not, you can't be in like Africa not care. Like I, I, I don't but, say. But you know what? There were a couple of people on the crew who didn't. Like everybody could go out on their day off. Everyone could, and there were a couple of people who stayed back and like were in the pool, and like instead of like going out and like seeing, you know, it was yeah, like I mean, it, if you crazy. Were, yeah, if I was in like New Jersey, maybe I'd just stay at the pool, you know. But, but see, that's the thing. Like, I did this show called Restaurant Impossible. Where I tra- we traveled around the country, and every every week I was in a different place. And um, for sixty five episodes, I did this, and a lot of the crew like would just stay in the hotel and then eat at the Applebee's next to the hotel, or the yeah. you know, you're always in those places where they look the same in every state, yeah. where there's an Applebee's and a fucking wings place, and the you know, like, yeah. and next to the Marriott, and I always always tried to go do something yeah like you know just because you you're you, you know i saw this i went in this cave in alabama it, um, i was just driving down and i saw i was like oh i'm gonna stop there on my way to the hotel and it was amazing i went in back in this crystal cave like it's called crystal caverns it goes two miles back and it was like it was incredible it was the most i never would have been there right. did you like, find right. Kreischer in there <laughs> i think he goes in those it's things the show. Yeah, you, just, you just happen to run into him that's awesome. Thank you much for sharing yeah. your story. Uh, thank you very much, man. Uh, thanks for doing the show. That was fun. Thanks for having me. And what yeah. is the show that's going to be out on Bravo at some point? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh the, it's called Tour Group. Or it, well, I don't know what it's going to be called, So, and I don't have a date for you it's on actually, that. It's actually, so what is it? It's, it's Well, that's the, one of the problems the show had was that okay. it, the, the concept was very open. Okay. It was like, let's take a people on a group tour and see what happens. A luxury tour. Um so, so that part of it will most likely stay. So if they ever see something yes. of a bunch of people on a luxury tour, yeah. they know. And then I, I have a show called Cake Wars. It's starting January 11th. The next season of that will come out January 11th. And I did this thing for for YouTube. It's going to be on their new Red channel. It's called, it's called um, Fight of the Living Dead 2. And it was amazing. They took all these, they took all these um, YouTube stars, each of whom have like four or five million subscribers, and abduct them and put them in an abandoned hospital where they're getting attacked by zombies. It was like a video game. And we for a YouTube thing, we had had sixty robo cameras and six handhelds, and like it was, it was, it had a real budget. Did you do this with Kevin Healy? Um, I don't know Kevin. Oh, okay. But we just they did a first season, and we just did the second season back in December. Okay. 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 Um, it was, what is the, when you say it's the Red Channel? What does that mean? It's this new paid service oh, channel okay. that YouTube's okay. coming out with, that Google's coming out with. Okay. Um, and it was a big budget. Like, it's the future. Like, these things, you know, they, they have these built-in audiences with these people. And get, sticking zombies on YouTube stars was, like, yeah. really fun. I bet, man. I bet. Real I love ones? zombies. Yeah, <laughs> real zombies. Uh, all right. Well, check those out when, you, when they come out. Be, yeah. be aware of them because there's no real titles. Thank yeah. you again. Thank yeah, you. Thanks a lot. Good right. show, Brian. I know. Thank you for listening to Hollywood Anonymous. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Hollywood Anani. That is short for Hollywood Anonymous. You can also follow John individually at John Huck and myself, Brian Irwin, at Brian Irwin on Twitter as well. Both of us can be found on Facebook. You can also Google us and contact us directly, HollywoodAnonymousGuys at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe 